So today I want to share with you this principle that's called the first claim principle. God's used this in my life over the years. I remember many years ago when I was a teenager, God used this this truth of the first claim principle in my life, and it's it's really shaped me in many ways. <laughs> Had a huge impact in my life, and I pray that it will in yours as well. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 9, thinking about this first claim principle. What we're going to see in Luke chapter 9 is exact opposite of what is the first claim principle. So this is actually a negative example, and then we're going to think uh, positively of this and then apply it to our lives. Look at Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57. Verse 57 says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that's Jesus, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is giving a little lesson on the cost of following him. And some of us who read this, we don't really understand what Jesus is saying because there might be a little bit of a cultural gap going on here. So let me just kind of uh, talk about this, for explain a few things for a moment. But it, you notice on your, your handout, there's some fill-in-the-blanks. So those of you who are keeping notes, I'll quickly give you the fill-in-the-blanks. Here's the problem that these three individuals had. These three people had a problem of me first. It was a me first attitude that every single one of these men were exhibiting. This was not an unwillingness to serve, but an unwillingness to serve Jesus first. The problem was, who was first in their life? Who really was the greatest love of their life? See, they had a place for Christ but not first place. And this is uh, one of these passages we use to talk about this first claim principle. God operates on this first claim principle. So that's your last fill in the blanks. God operates on the first claim principle. And we'll see why that is. We'll look at the basis for the first claim principle before we see how that is applied in our own lives. But back to the text, though, in Luke chapter 9 here, some, some look at Jesus' words and say, man, he's really cruel. He's mean. What, what is he doing here? It's like sometimes people look at Jesus and say, he's not trying to draw people to himself. It's like he's purposely trying to drive people away from him. Well, that's not what he's trying to do. But these guys were, were focused on themselves, and when you understand what's going on here, it'll make sense. Let me, so let me just explain a few things. Verse 59, Jesus said, follow me to this gentleman. And he comes up with this excuse why Jesus is not going to come first in his life. When he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That is not saying that his father had actually died. What it is talking about, though, is that he's saying, I'm going to wait for my father you know, his death, so that I can get the family inheritance. I want my inheritance. I can't serve you, Jesus, until I am rich, basically. I need my family wealth in order to serve you. And that's why Jesus says, No, you're not going to wait around for you to get the family inheritance. You come follow me now. I come first, not your pleasures and your wealth. And that's why I see Jesus says, leave the, the dead to bury their own dead. The idea is, you just let the world ca- take care of its own mundane things. 
Let the world take care of itself. You come follow me. Put me first. To the third individual, Jesus. Well, this guy's making excuses in verse 61. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. No, Jesus says, that's not how it works. I come first. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if any of you have done, ever done plowing before, any of you? <laughs> Probably not. Most of us are agriculturally challenged, aren't we? But if you've ever done plowing, particularly in, in the world that Jesus grew up in, if you were plowing with, say, a horse or oxen or whatever you might be using, and you had one of those, those plows you had to hold on to and push it into the ground and steer this, 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 this team around with a plow, it was incredibly hard work. There's no way, no possible way you could get a straight line if you're looking back. I understand from the years I've worked on the farms over the years that it's important when you don't have nice straight fence rows and things to, to use to get a nice straight line, what you often would do is you look ahead. You look at something at the end of the field. You focus on a tree or, uh, I don't know, something at the end, and you focus on that to get a straight line. you got to keep looking ahead. So the problem with people looking back is their focus is in the wrong spot. So Jesus is clearly showing us here these guys had me-first attitudes. Can't help but wonder if you're like me when I was growing up. You had a willingness to serve, but you know it wasn't totally wholeheartedly into it. It wasn't 100% Jesus. It was, you know, maybe, I don't know, who, whatever the percentages are, but it wasn't 100% Jesus. I really wasn't loving God with all of my heart and my soul and my strength and my entire being. Was it like Matthew 6.33? This is the way it should be. Hopefully you're familiar with Matthew 6.33. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then the verse goes on to say, and then all these things will be added unto you. If you know the context of Matthew 6, you know what Jesus is talking about there. He's the one preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And He's referring to the, that famous passage in Matthew 6 about the worry. At least three times Jesus commands us, do not worry. Don't be anxious. And he tells us several things we're not to worry and be anxious about. Our life, our food, our shelter, our clothing. Those things that God says, look to me, not to yourself. I will take care of you. So don't look to those things. All those things, Jesus says. But no, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, when you put me first, I will take care of you. I will meet your needs, your life, your food, your shelter, your clothing. All those things will be added unto you. But notice the order. It, Jesus comes first. It's not you coming first and your needs. Jesus comes first. So here's the first claim principle. You can write that in your sheet there. First claim principle is simply this, that Jesus Christ has first claim on the life of all saved people. Notice I said saved people, because an unbeliever has the wrong father. According to John chapter 9, an unbeliever's father is Satan. You're actually at enmity against God if you're an unbeliever. You're at enmity against. You're his enemy. You're not his child. You're not born into his family. That's why Jesus in John 3 said, you must be born again. There's a spiritual birth that must take place, a spiritual change for you to become his child. So here it is again. Jesus Christ has first claim on the life of all saved people. It goes well with that greatest of all commands that you're hopefully familiar with. You are to love God. With everything. You're, you're all your strength, all your soul, your strength, your mind, including even your mind. 
that he has first claim. And we'll see what that, what that kind of looks like in a moment. But there is basis in Scripture for this first claim principle. So primarily, we, we want to look at the person of Christ. So the basis of the principle comes from the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is he? When we understand who he is, we will understand why he has first claim on our lives. So have your fingers ready to move in the scriptures now, okay? First of all, letter A, we'll see it's because of who he is that he has first claim. Who he is. Who is Jesus after all? We'll look at some of his titles and his ministry here. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. So you go past Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, okay, chapter 1. Look at verse 20. See what the words of the living God have to say here. In verse 20 it says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the Apostle Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 21, and he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul understood what life was really all about. He understood why he was here. What was the purpose of his life? He was owned by Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus wanted to take him home to heaven, then he was happy with that. By the way, remember this is one of those prison epistles. Paul's sitting in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if he's going to be set free for sure. He doesn't know all of that. Prisons weren't nice places. But but he can say, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. God wants me in a prison. Paul's perspective was, then I'll just start a prison ministry. If he wants me to live, then I live for Christ. Whatever it is he wants me to do, it's all about Christ. So, let's look at who he is here. We'll start in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. All right, you tell me. No, not out loud, but think, think in your in your head, in your hearts here. What, who is Jesus? It doesn't say this word, but when you look at the scriptures, it, it's kind of obvious. Look at Colossians one verse thirteen, talking about Jesus here. Verse thirteen says that He, that's Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Sorry, he, in verse 13, is God. He's done this through his Son. In verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God the Father, working through his Son, has accomplished for us which, that which we could never do for ourselves. Conquering the greatest problem you and I have, which is our sin. It is possible to be redeemed, to be forgiven of sin. So when someone saves you from your sin, when someone redeems you, what does that make that person? In other words, who is Jesus? Well, number one, He is Savior. Jesus is your Savior. If you have been redeemed, He is your Savior. What does it mean to be, what is redemption, redeemed? What's that all about? Well, that comes from the, the old uh, <clears throat> Greek language of someone who is purchased, someone who is bought from the slave markets. The Bible uses that in reference to the slave, that we are in bondage, we are in slavery to our sin. Jesus came and he bought us from that slave market of sin and he bought us to himself. 
We no longer have that old master. We have a new master. His name's Jesus Christ. And so because he is Savior, he has first claim on the life of those whom he has redeemed. Those he has purchased with a price. And what was that price according to the Scriptures? It was his precious blood. He purchased us with his blood. And so he is our Savior. Now, I don't know why I did it in this order, but skip down to number 3, and I want you to look at verses 15 through 17. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. Again, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So what is this telling us about Jesus? Who is He? Well, He is Creator. (laughs) You probably already knew that, didn't you? I hope. He is the Creator. In other words, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you need to think of Jesus. Actually, you see all three persons of the Godhead there in Genesis 1 and 2. But Jesus is clearly described as creator. Without him, there would be nothing. And it goes on in quite detail here, describing for us some some very general terms of all of these things in God's creation. So it includes even invisible things. Those things you don't see, like angels. Well, at least we don't know that we're seeing them, although the Bible does say sometimes we entertain or we're hospitable to angels and we don't even know it. But So even the invisible, the things you see, were all created by Jesus, and He is also the sustainer of those things. It is through Him they hold together. Without Jesus holding them together, this universe would just literally fly apart. So because He is the Creator, that means He has first claim on your life. He's the one who created you. He formed you. Read Psalm 139. He formed you in the womb. Before you even came forth from your mother's womb, God says, I know you. He's the one who formed you. So that makes him the rightful owner of you then, doesn't it? He should have first claim on your life. Look at verse 18. We see another point here that needs to be made in verse 18. Who is Jesus? It says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that's a 100% word, in everything he might be preeminence. So number four says that he is head. Jesus is head. Just think about how important your head is. (laughs) Just think about that for a moment. Do you understand the imagery the Bible is using here? Because Jesus is described as the body's head, and of course that body is the church. So how important is your head to understand the importance of Jesus? Right? You, you, you understand you can lose parts of your body and you can still live. Some of you may have had parts of your body taken out. I know some of you have had parts of your body taken out. Right? And you continue to exist just fine without them. You can have arms and legs and feet and hands amputated and still go on living. But if your head is removed, you're dead. You're lifeless. You're worthless. And that's the way it is with Jesus as our head. We cannot function without Him. And I say we, I mean the church cannot function without the head. We have no direction. We have no life. And so because He is the head of the body, He has first claim on the life of the church. The life of those in the church, which of course are believers. Well, let's move back up to number 2. And you can turn to Romans 14 for this one. Romans 14. Romans 14, 
in the context of Romans 14, the Apostle Paul is talking about not passing judgment on one another in regards to various things that these believers were dealing with, things like, for example, eating food that's been offered to idols or maybe considering the Sabbath to be more important than other days of the week. And these were things that fellow Christians were arguing about and finding difficulty over. And so this passage was written to help us in that regard, to not pass judgment on one another. How do we deal with one another? But in the midst of this context, look what the Scripture says about Jesus. Romans 14, verse 7. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So who is Jesus? He is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord, He has first claim on your life. You understand, Lord has the idea of being a master. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who controls you. You see that concept here in these words of the Scripture. We don't live to ourselves. verse 7 says. None of us even dies to ourself. Your death belongs to the Lord even. Your life, your whole life is His as your Master including your death. So whether we live or whether we die, you're the Lord's. You're His property. You're His property. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, it's, or the Bible says, for to this end Christ died. When He died, it's like, it's like solidifying that, that truth that He is, or we are His property. But not only did Jesus die according to verse 9, He lived again. He conquered death. He dealt with our greatest problem that we have, that we might be His property. Because He's the Master, He's the Lord, both of the dead and the living. So He is Lord. He is Master. Move down to number 5. Number 5, and you can look at again in Romans 14 talks about this judgment seat of Christ through the judgment seat of God. Verse 10 says, We will all stand before this judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Scriptures say that Jesus is that judge. Elsewhere in Scripture, in, I, think, I believe it's John chapter 5, God says, I have given all judgment to my Son, Jesus Christ. So He is judge, number five. Jesus is your judge. Now, for a believer, your sin has been dealt with. And Paul talks about that in the previous chapters. And one of my favorite verses in Romans, Romans 8 verse 1, says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where is your identity? If it's in Christ Jesus, that means you're a believer. It means you're identifying with Him. Then your sin's been dealt with in Christ. When Christ was on the cross, He bore your sin. He bore God's wrath on your sin. So you don't have to. So what is this judgment all about then? It's, it's a time of reward. When you look at the companion passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which we're not going to do right now, but in 1 Corinthians 3, it says it's a time of reward. It's a time when your works that you have done here on earth will be, shall we say, revealed? 
revealed for what they really are? Were they things of eternal value or not? Were they the gold, silver, and precious stones, or were they the other things, the things that are burnt up to nothing, like wood, hay, and stubble? If your life was of eternal value, your works of eternal value, then God says, I will reward you. And Jesus is that judge, the one who knows all, reveals all. And because he is judge, he has first claim on your life. So we've looked at just a little bit, a little glimpse of who Jesus is. Let's move on to number, letter B, actually, letter B. This first claim, the basis of this first claim principle comes from what Jesus did. What Jesus did is clearly shown for us in Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians chapter 2. It's a wonderful passage. Shows us the humility of Jesus Christ in coming to this earth. Look what it says. Philippians 2, verse 5. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Wow. What did he do? Well, let's keep reading on. We see also in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is... What? Oh, there we see that word again. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus do? He forsook the glory of heaven. You have to remember, he was not always in human form. He must have had a spirit form before those 2,000 years ago. It says he became a man. He humbled himself. He took on, though he was God, he didn't count that something to hold on to, but he humbled himself, emptied himself, He took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. When he came, he knew he had a purpose in coming. He was born to die. He was born to die. He came to save his people from their sins, and he knew that required his death. He was that Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. It's amazing to contemplate. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus picked his death. He knew what his death was going to be. If you got to pick your death, would you pick the cross? I wouldn't. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he knew that it wouldn't end there. He knew that he would be buried and he would rise again. And he knew that exaltation would come, but the humiliation had to come first. That's what Jesus did for you and me. And he, he ever lives, my friends. He is at the Father's right hand, the Bible says. And there is coming a day when every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what he did. Because of what he did, he deserves to have that preeminence, that first claim, first love we move on to letter C. It's because of what he is to me that he deserves this first claim in our life. Because of what he is to me. What, what is he to you? Well, I hope you can agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6, verse 19 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 
By the way, this is plural. Plural, you don't see that in English. But plural, you. You, the body. You, the local church. Are not your own. Why? Why is that? Why are you not your own? Why why don't you belong to yourself? Because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We often take that in regards to our our individual bodies, ourselves. But Paul is talking to a local church. Our local church is to glorify God in our body. And who's the head of that body? Jesus. Who has He given to us? The Holy Spirit. And so we, plural, are His temple. Of course, every local church is made of individual Christians. So you are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what is he to you? What is Jesus to you? Well, you're not your own. That's one thing we know for sure. Because he bought you with a price, which of course was his life, his precious blood. So he is my redeemer. He redeemed me. He bought me. He purchased me. Therefore, you know what that means? I don't belong to myself. You don't belong to yourself. You never purchased yourself. Jesus did. So, for these reasons, which all center around the person of Christ, that's the basis of this first claim principle, that He has first claim on your life. How can we apply this? We'll move on quickly here. You'll notice in the application of the principle, you'll see the word claim. So uh, this isn't original with, the, the, the claim part's not original with me. So let's just think of how we can apply this. What is this going to look like? If we live out this first claim principle in our life in 2015, in the rest of our life, until Christ comes, what does this look like? Well, it should be lived out in our calendar In our calendar, letter C is calendar. The idea is our time. Your time, your calendar doesn't belong to you. You know what Ephesians 2.10 says? Well, if you don't, you can look at it. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What did Jesus do? Jesus created you for a purpose. What is that purpose? You're His workmanship, if you will. You're His creation. He created you for what? Good works. How long ago did He do that? Well, God prepared you beforehand. God had... In in this sense, God did have a wonderful plan for your life. I don't particularly like that phrase. But God does have a wonderful plan for you. And it was prepared beforehand that you should walk in that plan, that calendar, that time, that way, that purpose. So when you think about your calendar, I hope you evaluate your life at least yearly. Think about your life. It is a vapor. It's going fast. It will go fast. In light of eternity, it is a vapor. But our calendar doesn't belong to us. Our time doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. He has given you this purpose. You were created for His glory. And you need to walk in that. The idea of walk is it's your lifestyle. It's your your whole way of life. Your whole way of life belongs to Him. Your whole calendar and time belongs to Him. And that's that backed up in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you're doing mundane things of life, even like eating and drinking, or whatever you do, it, it is to be done for His honor and glory. So at least yearly evaluate your calendar and your time. And consider... What does God want me to do with my time, with my calendar, my life? How would He have me spend my time? Are you redeeming the time because the days are evil? 
You should be. Time is short. God only gives you 24 hours in the day, seven days a week, to glorify Him. You're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. How are you using that time? You consider every day of your life, wake up in the morning and say, God, what do you want me to do today for you? I was created for good works. I am your workmanship, your creation. What do you want me to do today? And pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you in His will. So the application of the principle applies to your calendar. Second of all, it applies to your life's work. It applies to your life's work. We've already talked about Matthew 6.33, that you're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things of your life will be added unto you. Do you consider what God wants you to do? Your occupation, your job, what you do? If you're a mother, well, it's kind of obvious what God wants you to do. Some of us have more options available. We need to prayerfully consider what does God want us to do. Your whole life work belongs to Him. He has first claim on that. Look at uh, Colossians 3. This says it well. Colossians chapter 3. Context here is looking at these bond servants, these slaves who need to serve their masters. Don't be eye ple or uh, just eye pleasers or people pleasers. Be sincere, fearing the Lord. But look at Colossians three twenty three says, "Whatever you do, work heartily." Notice who are you? Who's your real boss? Who are you really serving in life? It is as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. My friends, it doesn't matter what you do, you serve the Lord. He is your boss. Even if your job doesn't include getting paid, you don't get a salary or whatever, the Lord Jesus Christ is your boss. Some others, home executives, whatever you want to call yourselves, <laughs> you serve Christ. Yes, through the process of serving Christ, you serve your families. He's your real boss. He's the one whom you have to please. He's the one who has first claim on your life. And guys, as you, whenever work starts up and you go to work, whatever your work might entail, your real boss is Jesus Christ. And if you please Him, sometimes that means you won't please your earthly boss. But it doesn't matter. Because you're not really serving your earthly boss. You serve Jesus Christ. Number three, the application of the principle includes your affections. It includes your affections. Hopefully you're familiar with Colossians 3, verse 2, which is a command which says, set your affections on things above and not on the earth. What does that include, by the way? Think about that. Affections. Those are the things you love. My friends, that would include a spouse. So those of you who aren't married yet, you need to consider the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life when you consider whom you are to marry. Jesus has some commands and principles in the Scriptures you must follow in considering whom you should marry. Consider that. Go to the Scriptures. Your affections would include your hobbies. So when you're, if you have a hobby, consider that Jesus Christ has first claim even on your hobby. Some hobbies probably need to be set aside for the sake of the Lordship of Christ. Hobbies can be helpful things. Hobbies can be used to serve others and to serve God. Those need to be considered. Your children. Hopefully we all love those of us who have children. We love our children. Is your affect, where is your affection, though, as you think about that? 
Does Jesus Christ have first claim over your children and the love and the affection you have for your children? When I was working at LIC, I had a, a workmate who said, I live for my children. Wow. And I challenged my workmate with the reality of Jesus Christ. What, what happens when your children don't love you? They forsake you or they disappoint you or they sin against you. Then what's going to happen to your life? <laughs> life falls apart. But Jesus Christ never disappoints. When our affections are set on things above and not on this earth where they, sh- you know, where they shouldn't be, but instead where they should be, then we are never disappointed. Number four, the application of the principle includes your income. It includes your income. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 9. Proverbs 3, verse 9. A wonderful principle here in Proverbs. Which says in Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. And when you do, there's wonderful truth in Verse 10, it says, Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God blesses those who put Him first. So is Jesus first in your life? Is Jesus first in relation to your wealth? Your That, by the way, includes your possessions. Everything you have belongs to God. Do you use it for God? Do you consider saying, Well, okay, God commands me to be hospitable. How many of you regularly are hospitable to other people? Do you invite them into your home? Hospitality is not entertainment, you understand. God commands us to be hospitable. You ought to be regularly serving the body of Christ in that way. Your home belongs to Jesus. Your vehicle belongs to Jesus. It's not yours. You might think the bank owns it or you own it, but you don't. Everything belongs to Him and to be used for Him. He must have first claim on it. Number five, we can apply this principle, this first claim principle, to our minds. It also applies applies to our minds. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. Five, which says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought, emphasize every thought, every thought is captive to obey Christ. And that goes well with the greatest command, which Jesus says, You are to love God with all of your mind. It includes your mind. Your whole mind is captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, when you look at Romans 12, verse 2, it says, your mind is to be renewed through the Scriptures. How do I renew my mind in the Scriptures? Well, the Scripture talks about meditation. Are you regularly, day and night, Scripture says, meditating on God's law? Meditation is kind of like the cow, the proverbial cow. I love this illustration. You know, cows have more than one stomach, don't you? You'll see them throughout the day. They regurgitate their food and they chew on it. They call it a cud, I understand. And then they swallow. It goes down into another stomach and... And then later on in the day, the cow will regurgitate that food, chew it some more, it goes down into its other stomach, and eventually it gets more and more digested. It's keep, it continues to chew on that food. It's a great illustration of what believers are to do with God's Word. Not literally chewing the Bible, but figuratively we're to meditate, muse over it, think over it, using our minds... And in the process, you'll be pickled in it. You'll be pickled in it. Some of you may not understand that illustration either. <laughs> but uh, every year I like to make dill pickles. And when I make dill pickles, I buy these gherkins. We wash them up. We put them in the, 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 the jars. 
we pour hot vinegar and salt in there, and over several month period of time, that gherkin turns into a dill pickle. And I say dill pickle because we also put the herb dill in there, along with the vinegar and the salt. And that, that gherkin that frankly doesn't taste very good by itself turns into something, at least for me, I know some of you don't like dill pickles, but for me it turns into something very delicious. It changes into something that was, in my opinion, better than it was previously. And that's what God's Word can do to you over long periods of time. you continually washing your mind, soaking your mind in God's Word. You can be pickled in it so that Jesus Christ has first claim on your life. Well, how should we react to this principle? Let me just give you a couple quick thoughts, and then I'll end with something else. Letter A says this, that all believers should assume that God will use them in Christian work unless He otherwise directs, rather than assume He does not want them. Let me repeat that. All believers should assume that God will use them. And God will, if you allow Him to. But notice it's in Christian work, unless He otherwise directs, rather than assume He does not want them. Too many people assume God doesn't want them. God does want you. So don't assume otherwise. Some people wait for you know God to write something in the heavens or they get some he- heavenly telegram or God bonks them upside the head or shows them something that's really radical. God's given you His Word. And so you need to assume that God will use you. He wants you to use you. Let her be. I'll quickly go through this and then comment on it a little bit. God should never have to turn a saved person toward Christian work, my friends. Should never have to turn a saved person toward Christian work. The assumption is, I'm going to serve God. Whatever that might look like. Okay? Now here's another thing you need to assume. Letter C is that every Christian is in full-time service. I put quotation marks around the full-time service. Okay? Because every Christian is serving, is to be serving God. Every Christian. Why? It's based on the person of Christ, who He is, what He's done, what He is to me and to you. And so, that doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor or a missionary or that sort of a thing. But if you're a secretary, you're to recognize you serve Jesus as a secretary. If you're serving your family as a mother, you serve Jesus in full-time Christian work, if you will you want to put it that way. And I say full-time service because when I was growing up, there was this, uh, it, it was a dichotomy, if you will, this, this uh, confusion going on where you got people like pastors and missionaries. They serve God in Christian service, full-time Christian service, and get paid to do it. Everybody else is somehow some, a lesser kind of a Christian. They don't get paid to serve God. Wrong. We all serve God. God's given us all different ways of serving Him. Not everybody's going to be a pastor or a missionary. That's great, isn't it? God's given us all different strengths and weaknesses, created us to be different, to glorify Him in different ways, whatever that might be. And God places you in different parts of this world to serve Him to bring Him honor and glory. And do it. Do it. So don't think, hey, you know, I'm a mechanic or an engineer, or I work at the factory, or I'm a secretary, or I'm a mother, or whatever. I'm somehow less in God's eyes. You're not. <laughs> if that's what God wants you to do, then praise God for that. Do what He wants you to do, whatever that looks like. And serve Him in that way wholeheartedly. Well, there's an African that I read about many years ago, and I've put this up on my wall before, that it's, it's encouraging. And I want you to be encouraged by this young African pastor who wrote these words many years ago, and he put these words up on the wall of his home. And they're very encouraging, and I often go back to them to, to remind myself of my commitment as a Christian. And so if you're a Christian, I hope you can relate to this commitment. Here's what this African pastor said. 
I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow up, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the adversary. Negotiate at the table of the enemy. Ponder at the pool of popularity. Or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes. Give till I drop. Preach till all know. And work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own. He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. My friends, is your banner clear? Does Jesus have first claim on your life? He deserves it. He is the preeminent one. He deserves it because of His person. Who He is, what He has done, who He is to you. But are you living that out in your life? That's the question. So we might, with our words, we might claim to be something, but in our lives, not. So I challenge you, search your hearts. Pray the Holy Spirit would reveal to you, where does your heart really lie? Where are you today? Not where you were yesterday or last year, but now. What is your direction now? I pray that God would reveal that to you, and you would have the humility and the courage to serve God with all of your strength, your mind, your soul, everything. May God give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name.